0: Amen. Well, good morning, Anthem. You can uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts 13. We're going to be in verses 13 through 52, and uh, we're continuing our series. We just started it back up last weekend uh, in the book of Acts, and we're seeing the gospel go outward, and we're seeing how God is using the church to accomplish the task of taking the gospel, not just to the local regions, but to the ends of of the earth, and we're looking at what does that mean for us today as a church, and and one of the things both Stan mentioned, got to uh, had the privilege of teaching this weekend at the Salt Retreat, going through the book of Jonah, and if, if I just encourage you with everything that's going on right now, some of the things at the end of the sermon that I'll address, uh, there there is so much in the book of Jonah uh, that it speaks so profoundly to today. And uh, so I would encourage you to go read that, uh, but it was incredibly encouraging just when you think about Jonah being sent to the Ninevites and, and to the kind of what was to them the end of the earth at that point and, and being sent to these people and then coming back to this and then looking and seeing this mission that God has for his church, for his people, this mission that God has had since the beginning of time to see his grace spread to all of humanity and the good news of the gospel. And so as we're jumping into this, one of the things that comes from this that I'm just hit by as I'm, I've been jumping back into Acts and studying it again, is just how much joy, again and again and again. Like ev- like every half chapter, they're talking about how people are just rejoicing. They're they're overflowing with joy, and there's just this, uh, and and they're just singing and spontaneously. This seems to be happening, and and I don't know about you. I last night when we were uh, my wife and I were in the back, and uh, it was after like I'd, I was done with the last talk and. And just seeing students, like especially those who for the first time, they had just come to Christ, they'd literally just stepped forward to, to pray, to uh, formally uh, kind of cross that line and say, I, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to surrender my life to Christ. And just to see the joy, because all weekend we talked about what does it mean to have the grace of Christ, to have an identity in Christ, to have life in Christ, to have freedom in Christ. And to see the joy that the the students who are just coming into that reality, the joy that the students who have known that reality for a while, just to see that on their faces, it just, it was such an encouragement. And and I think as we jump into this and we see joy here, and as I've seen joy this weekend and last night, and as I'm getting in here, I I just can't help but think, how do we get a hold of that? How do we experience that? Yet I think there's something that often gets in the way. There's something that often gets in the way, and so we're going to be looking at that, and that's what today's passage is going to address in Acts, how to find joy, how to find joy in God, how to find joy in Christ, how to find joy in life in Him. And so here's where we're going to go. One, where can joy be found, or where joy can be found? It's not a question, a statement. Where joy can be found? Two, what gets in the way? And then three, how to find joy? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, that our hearts yearn to be joyful. Lord, no one says, I don't want joy. No one says, I want to be down. I want to be depressed. I want to be covered in angst. But Lord, we want to be joyful. We want to overflow with enjoyment, with delight, cheerfulness. And so Lord, I ask that this morning... We would see in your word how you have made joy possible. How you have made new life possible. And Lord, the things that often come crushing down upon us and how it keeps us from joy. Lord, I ask that for anyone in this room this morning or watching online Lord, who right now, when they hear those words joy, their eyes begin to well up with tears because they think that's a distant, far-off reality that I will probably never know again. I pray that this morning they would see that you, not just through me, but through your word and by your spirit, you would speak the words of life of Christ to them. Lord, I cannot do this but your spirit can. And so Lord, would you do that work this morning in our midst? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, where joy can be found. Uh, again, we're starting in Acts 13, uh, starting in verse 13. And, and what's happening here is Paul is on what's called the, he's just launched into what's called the first missionary journey. I, I actually forgot to bring up the, the map. Stan had it up next week. You'll probably be seeing a lot of maps in the coming weeks uh, just to help you orient where we're at. But uh, at this point, they're starting off on what's called the first missionary journey. And there are going to be three missionary journeys that Paul is going to go on over the, the course of the rest of the book of Acts. and. In this one, he's with Barnabas and a few others, and they've come to a city called Antioch in Pisidia. Now, the reason why it's called Antioch in Poseidia is because it's different than the Antioch that is in Syria, right? That's, I think, around, like, I'm not, I think Antioch's still there, but it's kind of around the area of, like, Damascus, Syria, modern day. Uh, and, um, but this is an Antioch that's over in, like, Asia Minor so think kind of like heading over towards Turkey. And so Paul has sailed over the Mediterranean Sea and now he's landed up over kind of by Greece. And so they've gone inland a little bit. And so they come to this area called Antioch in Pisidia. And many of the city were in the synagogue. So a Jewish synagogue uh, on the morning on the Sabbath, which would have been a Saturday morning. And they were there and they were worshiping God. And most of this gathering, this, this service was reading of Scripture. Most of what they would do in that time, they, of course, didn't have all this, right? Uh, and they didn't have band, uh, acoustics, and they didn't have uh, guitars and everything, but they might sing some, some hymns, but most of it was just hearing Scripture read. So normally what you would do is you'd go in, and you just hear lengthy passages. They would just, like, open up the book of Leviticus, open up the book of Deuteronomy, and they would just read, 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 maybe all the way through it. And so as they were reading through it, uh, this is what happens. Paul comes in, it says in verse 14, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Poseidon. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So what happens is Paul and his his friends, they kind of come into the back of the synagogue, get started, and they don't want to disrupt it. And they go and they sit in the back row. And they're just kind of listening to what's going on here. And then something very interesting happens. Something interesting happens. Look in verse 15. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, the reason why I say that's interesting is Paul by this point is known, he had been known as a great uh, Jewish teacher. But now Paul at this point is distinctively known as a Christian preacher and teacher Okay, so uh, he's now in a Jewish synagogue who, in other words, they do not accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't accept that Jesus was the Son of God. And so they know this, yet for some reason, at the end of it, they go, hey, there's that Paul guy. He's in town. Hey, do you have anything encouraging to say? Now, the question is, why in the world would they do that? Why in the world would they ask him to share a word of encouragement? Well, it seems that what they were reading it didn't encourage the people, right? And so what's happened is they didn't want the service ending on a downer, right? Like me, I wouldn't want like I get done and it's like, man, this was really a downer. There was like no good news this morning and everyone's just kind of like, all right, let's go home, I guess, do better, right? And so, and, and so they feel that and so they're like, we need you to encourage us. And so they're just like desperate at this point. Now, why Were they in that place? Well, what's interesting is it says that they had been reading from the law and the prophets. We know what they were reading. We know what they were teaching. We know what hadn't gotten to that place of encouraging the people. And so they're reading from the law. And so what's the law? Again, that might be a text like Deuteronomy or Leviticus or uh, Exodus when, when Moses hands down the Ten Commandments. And, and then, you know, Israel turns their idolatry and God has to, he forgives them, but he strikes many down. And, and kind of uh, how to fill up the temple. There, there's all kind of this stuff, but a lot of it is just the, the rules of how you must live. And not only the rules of how you must live, but telling you about how God is holy and you are not holy. And so therefore, this is how you have to cleanse yourself in order to be in God's presence. And so you can imagine as they're teaching this, this is just kind of adding like layer upon layer upon layer of like, uh, I'm not that, right? And so as that's being heaped on them, then they go to the prophets. And so then when they get to the prophets, what are the prophets? So the prophets come later in the Old Testament and the prophets have one distinctive job. See, the law, uh, there was something called a covenant, which was the way that like a covenant of marriage that God had made with Israel. And he said, if you keep my law, then I'll stay in relationship with you. And so the, pro- the prophets come along later when Israel and the people of God stop following the law. And they, they start being disobedient to the law. And so they come along and they say, hey, I'm going to warn you, if you don't follow the law and you don't turn back to it, then I'm going to put a curse upon you. If you do turn back to the law and you fulfill the law, then I'll bless you. And so what's happening is they're hearing, I can't fulfill the law. And then what comes in is a prophet's voice saying, oh, and by the way, because you're not fulfilling it, you're condemned and you're cursed. So of course they were not encouraged, right? Of course at this point they're overwhelmed. They're not joyful. At this point they're, they're miserable. Now why is that? Again, because the law pointed out what they could not do and the prophets condemned them for it. And because of that, there was no peace, no confidence, no joy. See, if we do not know what to do with our guilt, there can't be any true joy in our lives. Just guilt. If every single one of our actions, if we're always wondering, am I measuring up to this, what, what, what is the standard? What, what, is the, what is the bar that I've got to jump over? What, what are the stairs that I've got to climb? What are the heights that I've got to get to? What is the mountain I've got to get over? What is it? And what happens is we live our entire lives in fear that we're either never going to reach it or we end up living like hypocrites trying to pretend before others that we're making it. And both of those lives are miserable. Miserable. The opposite of joy. Because joy is something that cannot be taken from you, but Being guilty and trying to put yourself together at a moment's notice, you're tiptoeing around life, you could lose that sense of no longer being guilty. So there's never any joy, only fear. But here's the thing, the reason what happens with Paul is he didn't have a do better gospel. See, all they're hearing at that point, you can imagine they're in there and it's like, okay, what what do I have to do? And they're like, just be better, right? And you're like, okay, uh, how do I do that? And they are like, do better, right? Like, just be better, be good, be, be better than you are, right? And so you're like, that's, that's just not inspiring. Like, it's just not helpful, right? And so what Paul then stands up and gives them, he says, he doesn't have a do better gospel. Paul just gives them a better gospel. See, the Bible says, yes, there is a law you must fulfill and prophets who do remind you. However, the law isn't the end of the story. They were reading parts from the beginning of Scripture and the beginning of the story of what God was doing and how he's bringing that joy to the nations, how he's bringing it to people, and how that is going to be fulfilled. They're only getting half of the picture. And what happens here is Paul says there's more. The story goes on. There's more chapters. There's more pages. Keep going. There's going to be more. And so what Paul does is he stands up and he helps them see what Romans ten four says, which is, for Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. The end of the law, the last train or the last stop on the train, for for the train, is Christ. It's fulfilled in Jesus. And he says, and the prophets didn't merely just kind of foretell or foretell you about how to live, but they foretold of Jesus. They were pointing forward to him. And so Paul begins at the beginning, and from uh, verses 17 through 39, and he tells them the whole story. So what happens in verses 17 through 39 is Paul stands up and he starts preaching, the, uh, preaching about Christ, and so he recounts the history, the promises, the kings, the priests, uh, the, the prophets, and he brings them to this place where he says, do you know that this all points to one, that you haven't heard about yet? This all points to every king, every priest, every sacrifice, every." Moral law, all of these things are meant to point you to Jesus, to send you to him. Every king who fails, to see a king who will not fail you. Every priest who enters in and offers a sacrifice. Jesus is the true and better priest and sacrifice. He fulfills all of it. And he comes to this point in verse 39 where he says, And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. It says all of this, the, enti- the culmination of all of this is that d- Jesus has done away with this law. He's, or, sorry, he's fulfilled. He hasn't done away. That was a, miss, a misspeaking first service, still working out the kinks, right? Uh, so Jesus does not abolish law. He fulfills law. But he says he's fulfilled it now so that in Christ, you now can find a once and for all atonement for your sin. And it can be done. No more having to live, thinking about what is the arbitrary standard. The arbitrary, that, that standard, the absolute standard is Christ and faith in him and his sacrifice. And if your faith is in him, it's done. See, what he's saying is that everything points to Jesus. He's the whole point. And once you see that, you can understand the gospel. See, I, what happens is the people are amazed by this. What happens is the people are going to start just like, like it says the Gentiles. I'm going to read it in a little bit. They just kind of like stand up and they're like, This is amazing. Have you heard this? And they're just like kind of going wild about this. And and what's happening here is kind of, the best I can put it is that moment because they've they've been going to the synagogue clearly and they've been hearing the Old Testament scriptures and the law and the prophets and probably the religious teachers are saying, hey, you, you dirty Gentiles, you know what the good news is? Do better. And when you do better, then maybe you'll be like us. But probably because you've already sinned and I've, I've like never sinned, you probably always will be second class. And so they've been hearing that for years. And so all of a sudden this comes in and it says the God of the universe is actually giving you a grace that you can enjoy and life that can be free of guilt because you know of the one who God's wrath was poured out on to fulfill the law. And now you have new life in him and you live by his spirit. And they're amazed by that. How does all scripture point to that? I think the moment is like, remember that movie, The Sixth Sense? If you're like old enough to remember uh, that movie. I, I, like, I was sharing this with some college students and they're like, uh, dude, how old are you? I don't know. I was like, is it really been that long ago? Uh, but uh, if you don't know The Sixth Sense, uh, M. Night Shyamalan, it was like one of his first big movies. And I remember everyone was like, you got to go see this movie. It blew my mind, and I was like, okay. So I'm sitting there watching the movie, and it's kind of like, kind of moving through. It's like this whole idea that there's like this kid, and then he can see dead people. And as, because, by the way, I'm going to ruin this movie if you haven't seen it. So if you need, well, you need to understand the sermon more than you need to be shocked by the movie. So just listen. I'm going to ruin it. So what happens is, you're watching it, and this boy, he's... He's seeing dead people, and Bruce Willis is like the person who only, who's kind of like with him and is kind of like journeying through this experience with him, trying to help him understand how he's seeing dead people. And then all of a sudden at the end of the movie, what's revealed to Bruce Willis that you've kind of been seeing it from his vantage point is that actually he's been dead the whole time, and he didn't realize it. And so then all of a sudden at the end of the movie, there's kind of like this going back to the beginning and it like fast forwards through it. And when you're in the audience, when that moment, I remember when it was like it's revealed and you realize what's going on, the whole audience is like. (gasps) Right? Because you're like this. That's incredible. And it goes back then through the entire movie really fast. And it shows all the points where you're like, you're watching back through it going, The whole time it was right there under my nose, the whole time. Of course what was happening was it was pointing to the fact that he was was dead the whole time. And see, what's happening is the same kind of thing here in Scripture. As they're reading it, they're seeing that Jesus, the whole time, the law and the prophets and everything, they're they're now going back through and going, oh my goodness, the whole time. It was right under our noses and it was pointing to him. And they're amazed by it. This is why Jesus, when he's resurrected, he's walking with the disciples and they're walking with him and he says he starts with Moses and begins interpreting all the way up to his time and his resurrection and they see and it says their hearts burned within them because they realize the grace and the mercy of God that had been at work the entire time, that the law was meant to point them to Christ, to see their need for Christ. The law wasn't just a curse. The law was also grace upon. There was a grace upon the grace of the law to point them to Christ. That's why it's not abolished. So, of course, they were discouraged. they have been hearing the entire time, just do better. And now, for the first time, they heard the good news that it is by Christ's death on the cross. And let me ask you before moving on, are you missing that part of the story? We're going to see in a moment, but... I. I, I, I don't know, for some of you online, I, I don't know where you're coming from, your church history, whatnot, but you maybe have only heard the do better gospel. Kind of the, if you obey and you please God and you jump through all these hoops, probably usually some added on church things right there, you know uh, then God will love you. Then Jesus is for you. If you're sufficient, then Christ is yours. Whereas the gospel of Jesus Christ turns that, uh, turns that around and says, no, 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 Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is enough. Jesus has fulfilled the law. And if you look to him by faith, just as they would look at a sacrifice in the Old Testament by faith and look in its eyes while they drained its blood and said, yes, my sin is in this hand. You look at Christ on the cross and you say, that's the death I deserve. And you look to him and he says, then Jesus is sufficient then because Christ is sufficient. Therefore now obey. Therefore, now be free. Therefore, now live in light of grace. Do you know that truth? Because here's the thing. There, there's a modern day law that gets in the way of finding that joy. So that was how we find joy in Christ. Second, what gets in the way? Look at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So immediately after this comes in, they're, they're rejoicing in the streets and they're like parading around. They come in and they go, they just, they, it says that they, they tried to contradict what was, being, what was being said. So it's grace by Christ who fulfills the law. No, you must fulfill the law. And I think... Now, we tend to think, well, you know, okay, so pastor, but that's like that Old Testament law, right? Like we don't do that anymore. Uh, no, yeah, we, we've gotten rid of an Old Testament law, but we have what I would call a modern day law. And it goes something like this, because I think this is where we really feel it in our day, because we've gotten rid of those things. We think, like we have this chronological snobbery thing that we've like kind of, enlightened ourselves and we moved around or moved beyond those old rules but now we live listen to the law that we often every day feel that we must fulfill as a modern person so i want to take this and put it in our modern day and say what is the law that we tend to buy into and it robs us of that joy it keeps us from that joy because we're so focused on the crushing weight of fulfilling that law that we can't find our identity and our freedom in christ listen to this every day this is what you're told be healthy enough fit enough run a marathon While making enough to afford not only the basics, but vacations, spacious homes, vacation homes, new cars, trendy clothes, tuition, and retirement. And also, have a very robust life insurance plan, you never know. But be home every night for dinner. Make homemade dinners. And make sure to be a loving, doting, present parent. And don't be so busy as to miss any of your child's games. Or too selfish not to serve in the community. Protest, don't protest. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Spouses, do a date night every single week. Be handsome, be pretty, don't bald, that one's for me. Uh, Laws about sex, keep it vague, but essentially just be awesome at sex. Be up to date on tech trends, have the newest iPhone, watch or else you'll fall behind, you'll be disconnected, you'll be out of the loop, you'll be lonely, you'll be isolated. Keep up with all the shows on Netflix, oh wait, uh, cancel Netflix, get through high school, Get an undergrad. Actually, you're going to need a master's. Actually, to survive in this economy, you're going to need a Ph.D., probably a postdoc. Right. Avoid debt right after you get the education. Get eight hours of sleep every night. And, oh, yeah, don't break the Ten Commandments. And if you have time, make sure to go to church. And by the way, if you didn't post any of these on social media, they don't count. Right. Do you feel that? The law is alive and well. It may not be the Old Testament law. In fact, actually, as I'm reading this, I'm kind of going like, I, I don't know. I might opt for the Old Testament law versus our modern-day law. Like, I'm like, I can give up shrimp, Right? But here's the thing, they say, they're modern day prophets, these are modern day laws and teachers saying you must, prophets, a law that comes down on us, and then modern day prophets, just like in Paul's day, saying you must fulfill these. And if you don't fulfill them, then you're condemned, you're less than, you're not enough, you'll never add up. And here's the thing, that law, that modern day law comes down on us, crushing, just like it did them, and there's no hope, and it just says be better, look better, look better. Be more handsome. Be more pretty. Get your stuff together. Climb higher. Try harder. Jump higher. Think harder. You need, we need, the rest of the story today just as much as they did then. Listen, the gospel says, yes, you are more sinful than you ever thought possible. Weaker than you ever thought possible. Not enough, more so than you ever thought possible. But you are more loved and accepted in Christ than you ever dared imagine. Because his work is finished on the cross and it's sufficient. And just like that audience in Paul's day, you need that message. Moms and dads, you need to know when you're struggling with your kids. And I have three kids of my own and you are wondering every day if you're failing. Listen. Your children do not define you. Jesus defines you. Let him set you free to just be faithful, to give yourself, to be able to sacrifice yourself like he sacrificed himself for you, to lay down your life for them. Let his spirit work through you. But you need to know, and you need to be able to start with the fact that you are not defined by your parenting. Those of you struggling with work, your career, your job status is not your true status. Christ and his righteousness is your status. Singles, marriage is not what makes you whole. Ever since the Supreme Court decision a couple years ago, we defined personhood in our land. I remember my mom, before she died, called me. And as someone who for years had struggled with HIV, and knew she would never again be in another romantic relationship. She called me crying and she was very liberal and progressive and was all excited about the decision. At the same time though, she said, I realized they defined it based on sexual activity. I no longer have personhood. That's very insightful, mom. You are not defined by your sexual activity. You're not defined by just linking up with another person. You're not defined by romance. You're not defined by being united with someone else. You're defined by united to Christ. Take that. Cherish that. And when if the Lord does eventually provide you a spouse, it will be so much sweeter. Students, tests, popularity, attractiveness are not what give you meaning. They're not what give you worth. They're not what give you significance. They're not what give you hope. Let it be Christ. These things in themselves are neutral. All these things, that I, they're, just, they're neutral, but living under them as a law is crushing. So don't let them get in the way of finding joy in Christ. So third, how to find joy. Look at verse 48. Verse 48, it says, and when the Gentiles heard this, this is what I've been talking about, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. See, the Gentiles had never heard the whole story, and now they heard not just the do better gospel, but the better gospel that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on their behalf. And then the response, it begins again in verse thirty or 52, when it says, they were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's how this chapter ends, this episode. And so the question for us is, how do we find that same joy? Well, one, obviously, looking to Christ, but first, take stock of what is in the way. Practically, how do you take hold? What I just did was I just listed out what are the things. All I did, honestly, was I sat down and I was like, what are the things that are like stressing me out? What are the things that are just getting to me that I feel, I'm being honest here, bearing my soul, like just insignificant as a dad, as a man, as a person, because I'm just not never, I never feel like I'm enough. And I wrote them down. And then what I did after I wrote them down was I'm like, I'm just praying through and going, God, help me see where that is found in Christ. Help me see whatever my soul is latching on to in that thing. Lord, help me to see where Christ has fulfilled that, where he's satisfied that. And then out of that, let me be even more robust and working harder and leaning in and giving more of myself and being more devoted and, being, and growing and becoming better. But see, my identity is not tied towards it, to it. And so take stock of what is in the way. Write down what are the things, the laws that are crushing on you, the modern day law. And then I would say, once you make that list, go through it yourself, but also sit down with your spouse. Man, God, you want to have like just a sweet time with your spouse? Sit down and go, honey, this is is like, are you seeing this in me? Like, and, and just pray, let them speak into your life. Let them speak to your heart. Do it with your friends. Do it, if, do it with, with a mentor. Do it with your roommates. Discuss. Consider it. Pray. So take stock of what is in the way. Second, find others to point you to Christ. Notice that the Gentiles and disciples are always plural. It's never singular. They're never lonely. They're never isolated. They're, ne- they're, they're never alone. Because we need the voice of others. Joy is always tied in the bible with community we are made from community father son holy spirit for community with one another there's something uniquely hardwired into us as image bearers that we image the godhead and there's something powerful that god uses in being in community where we're doing these things and we need the voice of others to speak into our blind spots to see it i don't know how many times i'm like going i'm like i'm going to the other lane uh, this is like a big rig size wheel. I'm going to the other lane, and then I'm going over, my wife's like, whoa, wait, and I'm like, what? And then it's like, vroom, and I'm like, oh, I would have died, right? And so the thing, she sees my blind spots, and she's like, hey, honey, watch out. We need that in our lives from others. But then also we don't need to just go on, like, idle witch hunts in one another's hearts, looking for all the evil that's in there. We need to also go on grace hunts. We need to both be able to say, hey, this is where you're going off base. This is where, where I'm seeing... This is where I'm seeing you walk away. To point us to Christ when we are being led into and crushed by the modern law. And to point out Christ in us when we are walking in the Holy Spirit. This is one I'm just going to write here. If, you, if, if you're here and you're going I, I think Anthem is my home and you're not in a connection group I just right here just want to say I encourage you to be in one. This is where we want to facilitate relationships. The big church becomes small and you're able to connect with others and have these kinds of relationships. We want to facilitate these at Anthem. We want to follow Christ. We want this for your joy. So check those out at the, um, the welcome space afterwards. Then third, see Jesus on the throne. Uh, throughout this passage, Paul actually focuses a lot on the king, Saul, David. And eventually he gets to Jesus, and Jesus is on the throne. And he, he talks about this a lot. It's one of his main focuses. And the question is, why is Paul's focus, his emphasis when he's teaching through the Old Testament, mainly kings? Well, the reason is Antioch, I think, Antioch and Poseidon, was a, had a large Jewish population. But it was also named for a, the Jewish uh, the Jewish ruler's father Antiochus who was uh, it was had very high status as a Roman colony it was very closely tied to the Roman state it was very wealthy and the temple they had a temple there in the city that was also devoted to the worship of the emperor the Roman emperor and so what happened is these are people who have grown up their entire lives being around the worship of whoever is the leader of the land at that point Right? They're very geopolitically uh, nuanced. They understand what's going on politically. They understand who the leaders are, and they're very, very invested in that. In fact, that's where they find a lot of their pride and their comfort was by who is on the throne. But earthly rulers can be as fickle as in their day as they, are, they can be in our day. Often disadvantage their subjects to advantage themselves, and they come and go. But when they hear about Jesus, they hear of a king who became the king, by being disadvantaged for the advantage of his people. And then they hear that he's on a throne now. He's ascended. Not only is he, it goes through that he's he died, then he's resurrected, and then he ascends to the Father's right hand, and he's on the throne. In other words, what's happening right now, and we need to hear this in our day, that Jesus is on the throne. And we need to let that captivate our imaginations. In the midst of, we have, guys, corona, there's the election, racial unrest, I mean, RBG, I was like, the other night, I was like, RBG, like, it's just like, hey, here's this huge cake, and let's just put some icing on it, right? Or just, like, throw a grenade into it, right? Like, it just seems chaos. Uncertainty. I think one of the things that we can do well in these days, and this is how we see Jesus, and we keep our eyes on Jesus so we find joy, is that in the midst of all this and going, who's on the throne, what's going on? It's no different than probably what they had just read before too long in the Prophets. Because remember, they read the Law and the Prophets. And one of the passages they probably read was from Isaiah. And Isaiah 6 has this. This is where I'm going to end. Isaiah 6 has this picture where Isaiah, we always think of Isaiah 6, if you know your Bible, at the end where Isaiah like, like, uh, they're like, uh you know who he says who who can i send into the world and isaiah's like me send me and you're at a missions conference and they're like oh send me too right and that's like all we've heard isaiah 6 about but the first part of isaiah 6 is he goes into it says in the year king uzziah died that's isaiah 6 1 in the year that king uzziah died see what happened was in israel they had all these nations invading there was chaos everywhere economically and the king dies Now, when the king died, the problem was that that was not like our day where there's a peaceful transition of power. Hopefully, that's still true. But a peaceful transition of power. In their day, it was unbelievably unstabling, unbelievably economically, just physical. Because what would happen is they said, oh, all their sons now are going to start warring with one another. The kingdom will be divided. So other nations go, here's our chance to invade, take their raw resources, enslave their people, and... Go up one notch on the ladder geopolitically, right? So, what's happening is when King Uzziah dies, what it's saying is everything's in turmoil, everything's in unrest. It is 2020 in the ancient world. And what happens is then, Isaiah, it says, But the Lord was in his temple and on his throne. And so he goes into this temple which is God, a picture of God's presence on the earth. It is his very presence on the earth. And the temple is, it's, if you look in Exodus, it's, it's got picture, uh, like pomegranates and all this stuff that's garden imagery all around the sides because it's saying this is like the garden and this is like what God's presence on earth is supposed to be. And it's meant to spread throughout all of the earth. And what's gonna happen here is that the king, when you look at him, you see that what's really happening when you pull back the veil is these earthly kings don't matter at all. In light of the fact that he is on the throne and his Robe, it says, fills the temple. Saying his power fills all of the earth. And now that is Jesus on the throne. He's at the Father's right hand, and that means that if you are in Jesus Christ, that means that now you are united with Christ, and that reality at that throne is yours. And so if you pull back the veil and all the chaos On everything you're feeling of your life, of the world around us, what is most true is that he is on the throne. And now because you are in Christ, you are a living temple and now his Holy Spirit dwells within you and that reality now comes to bear in you and now that is why the people run with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. Anthem. That is our reality. That is a joy that cannot be taken by anything in this world. So how do we find joy? We see that Jesus is where true joy is found. Don't let modern laws get in the way and then fill your imagination with the reality that he is on the throne. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, that we have this truth that... You are on the throne in the midst of just everything around us. And, Lord, we are all coming from different perspectives and places on that. And, and Lord, I thank you that there's, there's not enough wisdom in, in mankind right now. Lord, we just need to start with the reality that you are on the throne. Lord, there is nothing that we can fix beyond you are on the throne. And because you are on the throne, we know that our status and our identity, our, our righteousness in Christ is secure And, Lord, from there, Lord, we can be filled with joy. Lord, it's so secure knowing you're on the throne, knowing that you are in authority, that you are all powerful, that our eternal destiny is secure, that you, we are one with Christ, and so our joy cannot be taken. That reality cannot be taken because he's at your right hand. And so, Father, let us start there, filled with joy filled with hope, filled with confidence. And Lord, walk out of these doors and into the city around us and speak with joy, filled with the Holy Spirit, rejoicing in confidence and in hope and making much of you. Lord, give us wisdom for how to speak into all these situations to do it well, to do it with humility, to do it with love, to do it for the sake of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name.